Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Hi, and uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. I'm Mohammed Bashir for the uh, CTSNet Aortic Portal. Uh, we are at uh, the EACTS 2016 in Barcelona, and uh, I planned for you a nice topic, uh, which is uh, type A aortic dissection, uh, optimal strategy, surgery, and outcome. Uh, we've, we've heard a lot about uh, aortic dissection during this meeting. Uh, in a nutshell, there are many controversies. Uh, that are regarding the risk identification, strategy, correct surgical intervention in the context of uh, thoracic aortic uh, dissection. And for this reason, I've uh, uh, invited for this particular uh, session uh, top experts uh, uh, on this topic. Uh, from my left-hand side here, I have uh, 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 Ali uh, Koenzad from Cedars-Sinai Heart Institute uh, uh, in Los Angeles in the U.S., uh, also, I have uh, uh, Dr. Joe Bavaria from, um, from the Hospital of University of Pennsylvania in the U.S. On my right-hand side here, I have the uh, president of the AATS, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Tor Sunt uh, from Mass General in Boston. Next to him, I have uh, Professor Heinz Jacob uh, from uh, Essen in Germany. And next to him, I have uh, uh, Dr. or Professor Martin Gerbenwager from Hospital uh, Heidsing in Vienna in Austria. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Um, Tor, the question is to you as a starter. All right. Um, size, we've all read in the literature, size is not everything. Yeah. And in the setting, especially of an ascending aortic aneurysm, um, to prevent uh, uh, aortic dissection, what do you think are the other risks, entities, that we need to look at uh, in, in, in this setting? What are the risks that yeah. we need to look at in type A aortic dissection? So I think, the, I think that's a great question, and, and more than, I think the point is we don't know what else to look at. Here's what we know. We know that that as aortic diameter goes up, the risk of dissection increases, but we also know that many, many dissections happen in small aortas. Yes. So it's a little bit of a misdirection play. Um, you know, we have gone after the issue of diameter and been more and more aggressive about replacing smaller and smaller aortas. I have felt without substantial evidence that they're at significantly increased risk of dissection. Mm -hmm. There have to be other parameters. There's an old, uh, old uh, joke in, uh, uh, about, the, about the individual that drops their keys in a, on a dark street and they're looking underneath a light post. Someone comes by to help them find their keys and they say, how can I help you? Where'd you drop your keys? And they say, well, I dropped them up the street, but the light's better here. <laughs> and we're sort of doing that with, with aortas, I think. We're, we're, we're looking at the wrong parameters and I think a great area of opportunity for research is to find out how else can we evaluate risk of dissection. Aortic diameter is not a good way to evaluate the risk of dissection. We've got to find other parameters. Is it history of hypertension? Is it 
material properties of the aorta that are identified by advanced imaging properties? What, what other things can we look at? That's great. I think if I, if I were a young surgeon uh, looking for a career opportunity in, uh, in research, it would be that, looking at parameters other than diameter to help guide us for uh, prophylactic resection for patients to Great. prevent dissection. Thanks, Thor. That's a beautiful uh, wrap-up of, of uh, where we are at in terms of size. Joe, um, when, when should I replace the, the root in aortic dissection? When? When should I replace it? Is there, is there a place for valve sparing procedure in this setting? So two questions. One, when do I replace the root? And, and two, it, would you do a valve sparing? When do you replace the root in a dissection case? Yeah. I think uh, you should replace the root in a dissection case for sure uh, in patients who have a dilated root that is especially dilated pre-dissection. You know, pre so if you can look at the root and you see that it's dilated, it's kind of, it has that look and, and it has that feel and tissue turgor that is a dilated root to begin with. You should replace the root in all Marfan's patients. You should probably replace the root in most, in most bicuspid patients who, who, um, who dissect, although that's a little bit more controversial. Uh, we just published a paper showing that if you we had exactly the yeah. same results in bicuspid valve repairs versus um, versus uh, regular uh, operations. Even but, even if the dissection is not involving the aortic valve in a bicuspid setting. Yeah. So this is about the root now. So yeah. the other the, the the more nuanced answer to your question is also that you should replace the root if the tear. Yeah goes down, that's an absolute indication, the tear goes down into the root. In other words, if the tear is below the sinotubular junction. Where the great controversy is, is in whether uh, you should replace the root if it's simply dissected into the root. And, and, and there's a balance there. We all, this is the, ten, in my opinion, this is the major tension that every surgeon undergoes who's, who knows a little bit about aortic surgery and dissection when they're actually doing the operation, which is, we all know that the single best operation in a, in a, for 75% of all dissection cases, who had normal aortic valves, you know, three seconds before they dissected, and pretty normal roots, that the best operation for those patients is a valve sparing operation. Okay. But, but when should you be doing valve sparing operations in all dissections, especially when you have to do a lot of other stuff? Yeah. Especially when they're sick for other reasons, and especially since, most importantly, that most of the morbidity long-term is not at the root. Most of the morbidity long-term is at the distal aorta. So, we also know what the, maybe the best operation is distally. Maybe we'll get into that. Yeah. But if you're going to think of this holy grail operation, which is a really good distal operation and a valve spring operation, that's not reasonable. Yeah. Okay? So, we have to make, make compromises. So, there, I think there are clear indications for root replacement. Um, we shouldn't really go past those. And we should just use regular aortic reparative uh, concepts for yeah. dissections, which is valve resuspension, kind of robust aortic root, re root repair, and then get out of there and do the rest of the operation. That's for 75% of, of the patients, that's what I would do. All right. Can I ask Joe a question? Sure, go ahead. So what about the age of the patient? So imagine the patient's, uh, the, the, uh, the dissection goes into the root, but not the tear. Uh, they have no known connective tissue disorder, but mm. they're very young. So you're suspicious young? that they have, yeah. So let's imagine it's a, it's a, it's a 40 year old. Yeah with an acute dissection, no explanation for the dissection. They should get they've a got no known, They've got no known connective tissue disorder, but they're awfully young. Yeah, and they've got a dissection of the root? Yeah. That should be probably a, a David Five. I would do a David Five in that, opera, in that case yeah. um, for 40. But you got to remember that if, if they have a malperfusion or some sort of arch tear, and you got to do a big arch operation, then you're talking about a 300 minute to 350 minute bypass run, and that, 
even for a 40 year old is, uh, is an issue. And we're yeah. going to come to the yeah. malperfusion in a second. Ali, you want to say something? May I, may I comment on that? You know, my sure. contrarian view about doing a type, uh, David type sort of surgery and a type A dissection is that uh, it's a complex operation. The goal of operation initially is to make the patient survive the initial insult. So if you have a, a group of surgeons who are not very experienced in aortic surgery, and suddenly you're requesting in a certain patient population to offer a David, the morbidity, mortality of that patient goes high. If you have a significant AI and patient need recross clamp, I don't, I'm not sure we're doing that patient a, a service. Now, if there's a regionalization of the aortic referral, and such as at, in Pennsylvania at, at UPenn, and if there is a group of surgeons at that institution that does high volume, that, that may be a more reasonable option and a, a very acceptable option to offer a type, uh, you know, David operation. I think that's, those are easy Yeah, but type, even at our place, easy we, David operations. Even at our place, we only do 10, you know, eight to 10% David procedures in type A dissections. Very specific cases like the one he just yeah. talked about. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I'm going to stay with you, uh, Ali, because uh, I'm just going to uh, shift the question to you. Thoracic endovascular repair, you've written a nice paper recently, which I've seen uh, out there, thoracic endovascular repair for acute type A aortic dissection operative techniques. Uh, uh, what, what's the pathology substrate you were working on, or you work on, or you tend to see in your uh, uh, in your in your field, and and what are the indications want to go endovascular? So I'm going to ask you this. I'm going to ask you then, Heinz, about the same comment to see what you what you're going to say different to what Ali. Ali. Well, first of all, the uh, gold standard is open repair. Okay. So I would say 99% of dissections and aortic roots and ascendings in our institution are done open repair, but standard way. So I've been quoted and been asked to give a talk on ascending dissections and stink grafting, while well, my practice is you know, 85% open repair. So I just want to make sure I clarify that. Okay, first. good. So um, having said that, there are a subset of patients who are octogenarians, uh, you know, sometimes nanogenarians. They have previous uh, uh, aortic valve replacement and have a de novo dissection. Uh, they may have additional comorbidities such as prohibitive lung issues. Uh, they may have a dissection or pseudoaneurysm abutting the sternum. Those are a subset of patients who are high risk for open repair. Yeah. Uh, even in experienced hands, I would uh, argue. And those patients, I think the endovascular repair, it's a reasonable option. And it might be just a bridge. So it might be a bridge, allow us to get the patient over an acute event, which is a type A dissection. Uh, and I see it very uh, similarities with mm -hmm. type B dissection. If you have a complicated type B dissection, stink graft could be a bridge to an ultimate you know, open operation in three months. Okay. And type A dissection could be as well, or it could be destination therapy for some elderly patients with, uh, with cardiovascular conditions uh, that are not substrate for uh, successful open operations. All of us can get a patient who is very sick uh, through the operation. The question is, what's the longevity, what's the quality of life, and how is that patient going to come back to normal lifestyle that patients uh, uh, you know, experience before surgery? This Those things a, have to be accepted. This is a question remain to be answered, uh, Heinz. Uh, thoracic aortic, uh, thoracic endovascular repair of acute type A dissection. Operative techniques, do you agree with that? Do you tend to do that? Or do you just agree with what Ali was mentioning? Yeah, we always look at the whole package of the patient. So we had, I think, two, two cases of endovascular repair, but uh, finally we lost all uh, those patients. The first one was uh, after implantation of a core valve. So we put in uh, a stent graft in the ascending aorta, and uh, the other one was, was a left main dissection. We put in a core valve and an additional prosthesis, but none of those patients made it. So I think this is still somewhat premature. We are working on, on uh, some stuff, 
to, to maybe create a kind of a conduit put in transapically, but it's not that easy uh, to, to achieve. So open repair, even in the elderly, is still the option That's number good. one. That's very good that you clarified the science and very good that you clarified this because people might take the concept from the papers that we read in the literature that actually you are after endovascular repair even in the setting of acute aortic dissection. Uh, Martin, yes. do you agree with the term tear-oriented surgery? This is like now it's going out, it's, you can see it on different, on different panels. Uh, Tear-oriented uh, surgery for acute dissection. Uh, yes, of course, you have to be tear-oriented, there's no question about, but uh, you have to do more than only resect the tear, because I received more and more referrals in Austria there where the ascending aorta, the tear was resected with an initial operation, so it's an ascending replacement of maybe two to three centimeters. Oh, yeah. So I can assure you, three to five years later, the patient come with a huge chronic dissection of the distal ascending arch and descending aorta. Mm -hmm. And then you have to operate this patient, which is not so easy. So uh, I think you have to tailor for each patient an individual uh, track what to do. Uh, frozen elephant trunk, it's a very, uh, to go to do more, to replace the arch and stand the true lumen and descending aorta. But of course, it's not the way to go for every patient. So you have to take into account the age of the patient, where are the tears. Yeah. And uh, we, in our institution, we have now the, so we have the, the politics. If it's a very old patient, we go, of course, open distal anastomosis, hemiarch replacement, and then to make with the root what we have to do, supra, uh, above the sinotubular junction, or to replace the root. If the patient is younger and we have maybe an entry tear within the arch or, the, or distal to the left subclavian, we would be more aggressive. So we would be go for a frozen elephant trunk procedure. So because the frozen elephant trunk is not only that he makes the duration of the operation longer, it helps you. It helps you to make a secure, a safe distal anastomosis. It expands the true lumen and then it makes for us, it makes it easier because always you have the discussion, should we limit to the operation to, a, to, to reduce the risk or should we make operate more, but uh, with the price of a higher risk. And in experienced centers who are used to use this elephant trunk, in my opinion, we have not to pay the price of a higher risk anymore only by inserting a stand graft. Great. So Great. you have, I cannot, uh, recommend in general to use for every type A dissection a frozen elephant trunk. This is by far too much. If the patient is 85 years of age, I would never go for a frozen elephant trunk. Instead, maybe even in an old patient, it helps me yeah. bringing that patient alive out of the arm. And because it's, an, it's good to have this frozen elephant trunk in your armamentarium. We're going we're gonna to touch yeah. base on the frozen elephant trunk in a minute, but I just want yeah. to uh, grab your thoughts on uh, Thor, on the, on the uh, we were talking off air on, on aortic arch in the setting of aortic dissection. Would you just replace the arch for everybody or what are the indications for, uh, for, for arch replacement in a setting of acute aortic dissection? So I, I would, uh, you know, in our institution it's uncommon to do a total arch replacement mm. um, in the setting of an acute dissection. I like the idea of doing a proximal arch that then sets you up to be able to, to do stent grafting, so yeah. a, a partial arch. 
the standard operation is still a hemi-arch, yeah. and, and, and in the U.S. at least, uh, most surgeons that operate on dissections don't operate on a lot of dissections each year. Yeah. And so I think it's still true, and this has been brought out several times in this meeting, it's fine to talk about these complex procedures, but, but you don't want to convey the message to every surgeon every yeah. time. Ollie, touched on this, that, yeah. th that this is the complex operation you need to do for a dissection. Some would argue that those patients that are coming back to you with a short mm. segment, coming back for redo operation, are a success. Because they're alive to come back to you yeah. for a redo operation. Yes, you can so, see it also from this yeah. side. Yeah. 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 yeah, Joe, what do you think? Do you have any comments on what uh, Tor has just been mentioned? Do you yeah, agree you know, with I, the I, I have a historical perspective that I think is you know, 20, 20 years ago, everybody was doing ascending aortic clamp type A dissection repairs. And now most everybody, not everybody, but most everybody is doing at least an open distal anastomosis or hemi-arch operation. Yeah. It's become a standard, pretty much a standard of care. It's been, it's been taught yeah. and, and the trainees are all doing it. And uh, the old guys, you know, that didn't know how to do that were just doing clamped uh, type A dissection repairs. Yeah. They're, not, they're not around anymore. Yeah. So in my personal opinion, we're going to go to the next phase. The next phase, to me, is either going to be kind of a, like Tor was just talking about, which is what we do routinely now, which is a, a, a zone two arch, what we call a zone two arch. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the zone two arch sets you up for anything in, in the future. It takes care of the arch disease. You can put a, you can put a standard stent graft in with a subclavian carotid anastomo, uh, bypass. You can put in the new branch, single branched arch, uh, branch vessel uh, T-bars which are coming as we speak, to the point where I've actually, we've actually changed our operation for type aortic dissection to accommodate the availability of these new grafts. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. And then the third thing, of course, is to do a, a frozen elephant trunk. But I think that slowly but surely, at the very minimum, a zone one, zone two arch is going to be done on everybody and should be done on everybody uh, if they have any training. And then the question will be when to do it frozen or not. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the hemi-arch will be, will be replaced by a kind of a mid-arch operation uh, that it allows you to, to have the option of a T-bar uh, you know, downstream aortic yeah. Uh, solution. Yeah. Yeah. That's my opinion. Great, yeah. thanks Joe. Uh, Heinz, we mentioned, Martin mentioned something about the frozen elephant trunk. Frozen elephant trunk has a wide array of use and utilization, but in the setting of acute aortic dissection, Martin touched base on extending the circulatory arrest time, extending the cardiopulmonary bypass time, and as Torres just said, mentioned to us now, is get the patient out alive, you know, uh, doing, doing uh, uh, what, what's in the patient's interest. What's your take on frozen elephant trunk in the setting of acute dissection, knowing that Essen is a group that innovated a lot in frozen elephant trunk? Well, 60% of my type A's uh, are getting a frozen elephant trunk. But yeah. first of all, we have to differentiate between type 1 and type 2. Yeah. And we extended the definition of type 2 to the end of the arch. And if there the dissection stops, we do ascending and arch replacement, that's it. So no indication for frozen elephant trunk. So there's only indication when we are opening up uh, the arch, uh, and there are uh, additional tears in the distal arch around the subclavian artery or in the proximal descending aorta, and we do angioscopy in all patients and we see it exactly. And I think that we can uh, um, justify doing it because uh, we are doing the zone two, 
uh, uh, approach for the last five years and the, the rapid lower body perfusion using a balloon uh, uh, cannula um, after the distal anastomosis in zone two. So zone two anastomosis is very easy, every surgeon can do it. And plugging in a, a balloon tipped uh, cannula, uh, we are now down uh, at 35 minutes of yeah. visceral ischemia yeah. and less than 60 minutes of the cerebral anti-grade perfusion. So I think this is a complete uh, different story. We are now uh, at the same uh, um, risk for this operation in contrast to the just proximal or hemi-arch uh, replacement. Great, Heinz, thanks very much for that. Tor, we got to talk about um, uh, optimal brain protection method. Uh, we're writing this uh, uh, AATS guidelines with Tony Estrera on, on how do we protect the brain uh, during the setting of, of uh, um, aneurysm repair. What, what's the best or optimal brain protection method that you would use and what temperature you would go down to? Temperature of the perfusate to the brain or the perfusate to the body? Perfusate to the body. So, um, the, the, best, the best brain protection is to never interrupt blood flow. Okay. It has to be. I mean, that's, yeah. that goes without saying, right? Yeah. So, so anything short of that is what are you getting away with? Mm. No? Right? So you make modifications to see how long you can cut off the blood flow. So, so anti-grade cerebral perfusion is the best way to, to protect the brain because it's not interrupting blood flow. I think that's a, that's a, a truism. Uh, the question of how cold uh, the, the brain should be is even interesting. There's some controversy about what the perfusate temperature should be for the brain. Yeah. I still still cool for 30 to 45 minutes, and that's usually um, 18 to 22 degrees, something like that in the body. And, uh, and I just feel most comfortable with that. I don't think that it increases bleeding, and it's usually by the time you've done the work that needs to be done, I don't think it prolongs the case very much. Um, but that's, that's, that's not the way uh, probably that Joe does it or Ollie does it. He'd probably go warmer. But I, I worry about uh, protecting the rest of the body. All right, that's good. Ali, do you want to make comments on, on? Well, I have sort of changed over the last five years to become a more moderate uh, hypothermia. Yeah. So I'm, I'm yeah. operating typically anywhere between 24 and 26. With the aneurysms are typically about 26 with dissection, I go to 24. I use also, uh, I've used uh, transcarnia Doppler over the last eight years, actually. It started with TVAR uh, experience and now also for dissections. It helps you uh, get an idea of uh, flow velocities and positivity index in patients who, uh, before the procedure, and offer the same amount, same flow rate uh, with an integrated cannula uh, as well. So it, it gives me some baseline parameter because just going by a flow rate of 10 cc per kick, typically, either it can overestimate or underestimate, and each of them have detrimental effect on the brain. So I think the blood to the brain has to be cold. We are about 22 degrees on that, uh, but the velocities, it can be changed. Also, unilarity or bilateral medical perfusion, those are important aspects. And if I have an extended uh, operation more than a hemiarch, I usually have bilateral cannulas inside the carotids. So. Okay. Now, dissection can be a little bit tricky because if you have a dissection flap going inside the carotids, that can complicate the situation. That's true. And in those cases, I always have, that's one of the few cases that I do axillary cannulation. Yeah. Otherwise, I, I like the central cannulation. I know Joe has been uh, described that before as well. And I think that makes the entry and the you know, advancement uh, in, in the surgery much faster. It, makes, it cuts down about half an hour on, on procedure time. Yeah, we've really, we've made a, uh, we have a massive change on some of this over the last five years. Uh, 
we're doing almost routine, routine central cannulation now. We're getting away from axillary cannulation for a number of reasons. The first one is, is I'm not sure, so sure it's completely benign when you have a nominate artery and yeah. even left carotid artery uh, uh, dissection. Yeah. Um, also, there's, it's, people don't like it. We've had you know, small problems with, with nerve injuries, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, so we've gotten away from that, and the only time we use axillary cannulation now for type A dissections is the redo. Uh, we, do, we still do the redos. But we do 250 consecutive uh, you know, central cannulations for the most part. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we use anti-grade cerebral perfusion. Um, we'll cut the aorta out, start the, start the cannulas into the uh, uh, anominate and left carotid artery, making sure that we have the issues covered with uh, dissection into those vessels if necessary. Uh, and um, we use nears on everybody, make sure the nears yeah. are, are, are uh, okay. Yeah. And I use a left uh, common carotid artery pressure measurement during yeah. the case, so it's really very, very well uh, monitored. So that's kind of our approach now. And we're, we're doing it, anybody who has life expectancy over you know, 10 to 15 years gets, a, gets his own two arch. Yeah. Um, so um, it's kind of a, we've changed our, changed our protocol. And I actually go to 22, 20 to 22 degrees as well. One It'll of, go pretty, pretty cold. Yeah, I, I think that as this, I, I'm very much interested in what, uh, what, what you, you both think, but I, as I've listened to people talk about going to moderate hypothermia, yeah. it sounds more like what I called profound hypothermia. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, you know, cooling for an hour plus. That's uh, I've never, I've, I've never done that. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's not the way Kachukas taught me to do things. Uh, he used to say, always cool for at least half an hour. So it's sort of a, yeah. to me, it's 30 to 45 minutes. And, and, and actually, it may not be that different from what some are calling moderate. Look, I don't know. What, could you, what you actually, uh, Tor, if I remember, one of his studies actually reviewed this circle rest uh, situation. And uh, at 50 minutes cooling, that's where the majority of brain waves will be isoelectric. So I remember that was one of his words that Joe, oh, Joe's oh, done, Joe, Joe's oh my God. significant work on that. <laughs> oh, President, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> we will edit so, that. <laughs> oh, thank you. So, so I think that's, 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 the, uh, that's a lesson that I remember. If I want to do all the way uh, deep hyperthermic, and I don't have any information about regional oxygen saturation, 50 minutes might go away. But those are cases that typically are more complicated redo. Uh, it's for sure total arch. Uh, for regular hemiarch, I rarely have to have a, a circle rest time that is more than uh, 15 to 25 minutes. Yeah. That's bottom line. Yeah. I want Martin. to put the attention to one point. It depends where you are measuring, because if uh -huh. you really measure core temperature, it is a rectal temperature, visceral, bladder temperature. Yeah. And a lot of centers are measuring the nasopharyngeal temperature yeah. via the, uh, or a tympanic temperature in, in the ear. And yeah. so this is uh, much lower yes. than really the core temperature. Yes. So yeah, if I say the real core, I have a most fly here. Yeah. Brain temperature, this is what I do. Brain temperature is arterial inflow temperature. Whatever the arterial inflow yeah. temperature is, that's what the actual brain is, because the brain gets so much blood flow. So you can actually figure out what the brain is. If you ask your perfusions, what's the arterial inflow temperature? That's what the brain temperature is. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. This I issue do. about about moderate and profound hypothermia is not yeah. about the brain. It's about the rest of the body. And one additional aspect is uh, there is a, exists an autoregulation of the brain, yeah. and course, and, right. and some people are arguing if you are very cold and yeah. you are perfusing the brain with below 20 degrees, this is not so good because you receive a vasoconstriction of the arteries. So a warm, a warmer, moderate, yeah. not warm. 26 degrees is uh, for the perfusion of the brain better than to go too, too far down. But even in my unit, I, I need 30 to 40 minutes till I reach 27 degrees. So, but we are measuring the, really the bladder temperature, mm -hmm. the rectal temperature. 
If I would measure the NASA pharyngeal temperature, it would be 22. It's mo yeah. mostly five yeah. degrees difference. Yeah. It's always so, there's always a controversy when it comes to uh, when it yeah. Comes in to every temp, paper, yeah. you have to read it exactly. They that are measuring could. on different sides. Yeah. That's why if cool. you really had EEG, that would be the that would that's be the, the best way. That would be the best way. Cool, cooling to a rectal temperature of 18 degrees. Oh my that, God, that, I can't. No, I yeah. mean, that's crazy. That <laughs> yeah. You have to warm up them for hours. I don't even uh, use yeah. rectal temperature anymore. I no, tell them not no, to put no, them in. No, right. Well, you see, we are we are using the 28 degrees of core temperature, bladder temperature, and when we reach this temperature. Then we uh, go to the uh, arch uh, uh, procedure and uh, perfuse the brain with 22 degrees. So for those 35 minutes, we, we do it uh, with 22. And after starting up uh, the visceral reperfusion, we slowly go up. So, so I think that's a very important point. Yeah. So when, when we uh, have done our um, Turbo perfusion after, let's say, 60 minutes, um, the core temperature might have been dropped from 28 to 27 or something like that. And this, uh, in, in summary, will, will shorten up our circulatory uh, time. And this was found in our study, uh, wrapping up all our cases, that, that one risk factor was to have an extra corporeal time beyond 250 minutes. So we have to cut down to this. Do you measure EEG? No, we have NEARS, that's it. Let's, let's move on. Okay. Malperfusion, I want to touch base on malperfusion uh, in, in this setting, in type A uh, aortic dissection. Ali, what would you do? So malperfusion is a grave condition that complicates the management of the type A dissection. Yeah. And uh, in our institution, we have initially addressed the malperfusion itself, meaning if the patient has an intestinal or ischemia to the extremity that has been relieved before we proceed with a prompt open repair. I think in our, in our hands, this has shown to improve outcomes because on occasion, and, and, and not common, but on, on uh, less common occasions, you can, have, you can continue to have malperfusion if you have an anatomic malperfusion to the intestine. So any um, resection of a septum and distal arch and reperfusion of false and true lumen will not relieve an anatomic malperfusion to the branch vessels, including SMA and celiac, uh, that, that are very sensitive for, you know, uh, in terms of patient survival. So in those cases, we go in, uh, we put a stent graft in, if need to be, we stent in the branches, or we do an open bypass if need to be. There's been one or two patients we've had to do that. But uh, after that, once that's relieved, we confirm that uh, malperfusion is relieved, we proceed with the type A repair. Okay, I'm going to complicate things for you, Heinz. I'll save you the best pie of the cake. Um, malperfusion on bypass. How would you deal with that? You shout, you, you, um, somebody, somebody screams yeah. in the back of your, yeah. uh, well, and it says, oh, you got a malperfusion yeah, on well, bypass. For example, if you're doing the axillary cannulation, yeah. and there's all of a sudden a, a drop in blood pressure, we immediately do the central cannulation, for example. Mm. So. Mm. And if, if we, we have a primary dissection of the truncus and, and the left carotid, we do the central yeah. cannulation. We do it a little bit differently than you are doing with the Seldinger technique. We are uh, doing an exsanguination, and once the, the blood is... Samurai? <laughs> do the samurai technique? I don't know, no. Uh, so once the blood pressure drops below 30, we are cut in, cutting uh, the aorta putting in a couple of uh, retractors and do a distal uh, stab, and then we 
bring in the, the cannula, de-air, and, and start perfusion of the true lumen. So this takes 90 seconds, the patient is over-oxygenated, this is, in our hands, the perfect solution for this. All right, Ali. Uh, well, I want to also uh, mention that it's also atrogenic uh, malperfusion that can happen. Yeah. In fact, with femoral perfusion, uh, there's significantly higher incidence of malperfusion because it's thought to change the initial anatomy of uh, proximal perfusion to the distal, and it can change and vary the hemodynamics and pressurization of false and true lumen different spectrum or within the abdomen. So uh, that's, that's an area that I think uh, femoral cannulation is getting less, less and less in favor of the majority of cardiac surgeons. Uh, the second thing is the transcranial Doppler is one of the reasons uh, I adopted is actually for that malperfusion. Hazim Safi looked at a paper for type A dissections, and about a third of those patients, after going on, on pump, there were a significant drop of one of flows to one of the uh, brain vessels. And based upon that, he actually changed the cannulation style, meaning either you had to put a cannula inside the orifices, or he changed basically from groin to the uh, yeah. centrally. Yeah. So yeah. I think those things have to be uh, meant, uh, kept in mind because there is an aspect of iatrogenic malperfusion when you go on pump. All right. I think Great. the most important so. thing about malperfusion is, is that for the first time over the last few years, we actually have a reasonable solution. Uh, and I actually believe that a frozen elephant trunk is going to be a, a, a class 1A indication uh, for type 8 dissection repair if you have a significant malperfusion. It's the best indication for, uh, for, uh, for a frozen elephant trunk, as far as I can see. All right. If Any I, comments on that, Ali? I'll comment, I'll comment. So, I mean, if you look at the uh, malperfusions of descending thoracic aorta, uh, about 95 of them are, as you know very well, as I uh, described, is, uh, you know, is not anatomic. The ones that are anatomic is the one where you have basically a piece of clot or a piece of septum within the orifices. So we know in those patients, just stent grafting of the uh, proximal descending thoracic aorta as frozen elephant trunk will not uh, relieve the thing. So I would caution that that would uh, fix all the malperfusions. Yeah, that's not a malperfusion. That's an occlusion of the vessel, okay? <laughs> thrombosis of the vessel. It's called, anato it's called there's anatomic malperfusion. There's a difference between a malperfusion and a thrombosis of the vessel. If you have a thrombosis of the vessel, you, got, you have to do a surgical, you know, surgical bailout. Mm -hmm. so. uh, I think there's a difference one, one between dynamic add, and anatomic malperfusion. It's also important to make a very early angiography after the operation, after accomplishment of the operation, yeah. because not always the frozen elephant trunk solves everything. Yeah. And maybe some additional interventional radiological uh, techniques, stenting, are necessary to, to, to restore perfusion of the superior mesenteric artery. So. But then it's too late if you have yeah. a real complete. So, so do you routinely do your dissection repairs in a hybrid room? No, this is a question I hand over to Heinz. Well, that's a good I question, of course. Yeah, we have this yeah. program for the last 12 years, that the patient with acute wow. aortic syndrome comes in, the hybrid room and the cardiac surgeon, the cardiologist and the anesthetist is awaiting the patient. So if it was a wrong diagnosis, no problem, patient gets out. But uh, then we have TE for first uh, thing, and uh, if uh, there is a suspicion of type A, okay, instrumentation, and then our cardiologists are doing uh, angiography because sometimes the, the CT scans are several hours old. Yes. They don't come in like in Japan within an hour. True. We have True. eight hours or t 15 hours yeah. delay, so maybe the situation is completely different. Okay. And I think uh, we have to uh, uh, consider the, the, the level of uh, malperfusion, for example, <coughs> The worst group in our place is the coronary malperfusion. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then th yeah. there's no time to lose. You, you go in and do it very quickly. And the second uh, problem is, uh, is the visceral malperfusion. Yeah. And 
if it's six hours or longer, full uh, uh, male perfusion, I don't start operation because we lost all those patients. So we do the stenting first, yeah. do the reperfusion of the viscera and wait with a, a drainage uh, in the pericardium. Yeah. So as long as the patient stays hemodynamically stable, we wait 24 hours or so on the ICU and then go in. And you have good we, results with that. I yeah. What does it mean, good results? I mean, in my experience with this uh, devastating situation, I had 100% mortality. Yeah. Now yeah. I'm maybe uh, around 30 or so. This right. is not good, but it's better than yeah. it used to be. Let's, yeah. let's wrap it up with, with one last question to you, uh, to you all. Well, to, I'll, I'll, I'll ask Tor actually to wrap it up for us. The best outcome for a patient with aortic dissection is to get them alive out of theater. Yeah. How to do yeah. that? Happen <laughs> uh, repair, uh, supracoronary anastomosis, get the patient out, deal with the other problem later, or do extensively a hemi arch. How, just just as a, as a sum up of all this. Well, I guess the uh, I guess the best way to answer that is to quote the great American philosopher Dirty Harry. That's why I ask you the question. <laughs> Dirty Harry Callahan, <laughs> and said, who, who who famously said, "A man, and we can take it in this day and age, and a woman." has to know their limitations. So <laughs> right. if, if yeah. the right. best operation in your hands yeah. is a supercoronate tube graft, yeah. then do a supercoronate tube graft. Yeah. If, you know, it, it's the balance of what the patient needs, and what you can do safely in your environment. And remember, too, it's not just you as the surgeon. How are your perfusionists with circulatory arrest? Yeah. I mean, we've got, uh, there are, in the United States at least, there are centers that do 75 pumps a year, 100 pumps a year. Their perfusionists are probably not going to be comfortable with uh, with uh, circulatory arrest, and they may be better with a two-inch tube graft and a yep. cross clamp if they survive. So, a man's got to know his limitations. Great, great, good, good way of ending up this uh, beautiful session, which I'm sure you all agree with. We need to ask more questions, but in the interest of of finishing this session, in the interest of time, I'm sure you've all had a very uh, laborious day here at EACTS. I'm going to finish this session and thank you all for uh, coming over, coming down and uh, giving your expert opinion on that. Thank you very much for joining us. You've been with Mo Bashir uh, for the CTSNet Aortic Portal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to CTSNet to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTSNet to Go. Have a great day.